Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Joining me today on Trial Lawyer View is Ilya Irma and Jamie Holland. They're both excellent trial lawyers with a specialization in litigating brain injury cases among catastrophic injury cases and other types of cases. But today's episode is a special one with a discussion focused on litigating brain injury cases. Uh, I heard Ilya speak at an FJA, Florida Justice Association seminar along with Jamie on the topic of handling these cases and thought it would make a great episode for the Trial Law Review podcast. Uh, Since we have a lot to cover today, I'm going to do a brief introduction uh, for both of them, which I'll read. Ilya is an outstanding trial lawyer practicing with her own Phoenix-based law firm, the law offices of Ilya Lerma. Uh, Due to medical issues affecting a close family member, She grew up around neurologists, neuropsychologists, and neurosurgeons, and even planned to attend medical school. Over the years, insidious brain injuries and concussions impacted her closest friends and relationships, and early in her practice, she became a voice for clients suffering these injuries. For more than two decades, she's unearthed the details of her clients' cases because she knew and understood where to look. She uncovered the evidence so that she could not only deliver the stories of their injuries, but their lives. And Jamie, Jamie's a phenomenally accomplished trial lawyer, bringing nearly three decades of trial experience to Holland Law Firm. He's a board-certified trial attorney who takes a compassionate approach to his cases. His goal is to help clients make the best of difficult situations and serve as their trusted legal advocate during and after their cases. When he's not representing clients, he can be found coaching trial advocates and teaching CLEs. Holland's exemplary work and dedication to ensuring justice for his clients has landed him multiple accolades and recognition. Welcome, Ilya and Jamie, to Trial Lawyer View. So glad that you guys could both join me today for uh, what should be a very interesting discussion about these types of cases. Thanks, Jason. Uh, So before we jump into talking about the brain injury cases, uh, I wanted to ask you both about trial trial structure, since you both are instructors. What is it and what has it done for your practices as well as what does it help do to help other trial lawyers? Wow, uh, that's a big question. I'll give a summary and state that trial structure is really a method of breaking down cases and rearranging the pieces for the most powerful and compelling persuasion effort at trial. We all know that uh, people learn in different ways, and sometimes processing information is really difficult, getting the message across. And so trial structure really teaches trial lawyers, plaintiffs only, 
how to rearrange the pieces of their case for the, the best uh, trial presentation possible. And what's great about it and how it helps attorneys is it's a method that can be reapplied in every single case so that you learn it, you practice it, you master it. So that ultimately um, spotting patterns, um, predicting um, outcomes, predicting defenses becomes um, integral to case development and trial structure teaches you how to do that. I'll just add to that. If I had to put it in a sentence, it's how to put the juice in the jury box. I mean, that's that that's what it does. And did you guys actually meet through trial structure or were you acquainted before you both became instructors at trial structure? We met through it. I, I was, you know, candidly, I learned a little bit more than a little bit. I learned a lot from Elliot and uh, and and became an instructor myself. And we have we have shared and mentored each other along the way. I think, candidly, I've probably gotten a lot more than I've given, but I'll, I'll take what I can get. So, now he says that that's not not at all true. But we we sort of met through uh, the school if, in terms of, of uh, becoming instructors for trial structure, and we've become friends and colleagues and co-counsel. Uh, pretty much um, several several steps in there um, along the way. And one of the beautiful things I, I see about the plaintiff's bar is is their willingness to help each other. And uh, it sounds to me a lot, and I've not been through trial structure, so I can't can't answer that, but it's just another way of, of making sure that uh, we all are doing our best job for the people that we serve, which are uh, people that need, need our help. Uh, you know, we, we do, a little bit different. We're at the end of the case, but you know everything that we do is focused on that. And I really love seeing that uh, that same care uh, about serving that population, people that have had their lives disrupted due to uh, these serious injuries. Uh, I was going to ask um, just if you guys have specific examples of how trial structure helps a trial lawyer, um, like it, as case examples. Dozens, <laughs> dozens. I will say just preliminarily, and then I'll kind of punt to uh, to Jamie. I'll say that preliminarily, I think we help plaintiff lawyers because we train them in the methods so that they can ultimately handle these cases on their own. And I think that's one of the things that sets trial structure apart. Not that we don't enjoy co-counseling, not that we won't co-counsel and have been invited many times to co-counsel. In fact, right now I'm in Chicago because of a trial structure case. Um, but, you know, really the method is designed to help plaintiff lawyers because we know how difficult it is to go into court right now and ask for, you know, sometimes these seven-figure, eight-figure verdicts and or, or even, you know, um, six-figure verdicts or, or, or less on a, on a difficult rear-ender case. It's tough. And one of the things I really love about trial structure is it's really developed so that the trial lawyer themselves can, can hone their skills. They may not try the case by themselves, but they will get better in the method and learn how to develop the case after that. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had a co-counseling or a coaching relationship where we all didn't leave, it, leave that day a lot better off. And, and I'll give you an example. Uh, I've got a case that I'm trying. Well, we'll see. I'm, I may be trying next month. And I saw it tried the first time. I happened to be in a courtroom next door. I watched it being tried and, and 
these cases, regardless of the case, it's really easy to get in your lawyer head. And it's really easy to get in your lawyer head and, and to miss the nuances. And when you, part of what trial structure does is it boils it down into the best crystals to give to the jury. And by that process, you end up with a better lawyer, a better case, and a better result in, instead of trying to struggle with all of these little logic loops that we tend to get caught up in because we tend to be very smart lawyers. But that doesn't make it a very good, a very, a very good advocacy. So. You know, that's actually an interesting point. Um, thinking along the lines of a case example, Jason, um, I structured a case. This was with Alejandro. It was actually 17 full days of structuring. It was one of the most difficult uh, battles we we had because the judge had effectively left only one claim on the table, and it was a case that involved a canine attack. And it was a can a, a trained police canine. The purchasing officer of the the retired canine um, who was ultimately turned loose and mauled to death an elderly gentleman and gave a brain injury to his neighbor. Um, the police officer who had adopted the dog was himself a canine trainer. So it was a good case until that last bit of information. And that made it really, really difficult to structure because the failure to warn was sort of assumed by the police department who said, you know, absolutely not. This guy was a trained police officer, so he knew. He knew the dangers of, of not following the training. And after structuring that case, we were able to um, uncover and, uh, a story that exposed the fact that the police department knew that adopting this um, relatively young canine, very young to, to be retired, to a young officer who had limited police experience, even though he had some training um, with canines, the, the police department really knew that, that the officers had a habit of treating these canines like pets. And they knew that assuming that, the, the, that this officer would just, um, would just know that the dog's training could deploy, it, it just completely changed the case. And that ended up being a, a $20 million verdict. I wanted to key in on that term that you guys are using because uh, just to make sure that those who listen really understand it. When you talk about structuring a case, is that the development of a plan or are you talking about exactly how the case is presented? What what does that entail? Not not asking you to give away all the secrets. Obviously. You, could, you could give us three months and we wouldn't be able to reveal all of the secrets because it's pretty in-depth, but I'll let Jamie jump in here. I think I would check box D, all of the above, because it is the approach to the case, how you develop it through discovery and depositions. It is the advocacy of the case, how, you've, how you develop the best um, way to present it to a jury so it sticks and it isn't just forgotten after 24 hours. And also, I was laughing inside as I listened to Ilya present the, the canine case, is because literally she's so immersed in trial structure, when she describes something, she's describing it in the method that we teach. And it's part of why it's so powerful. But she's also behind the scenes developing it in that method training the witnesses so they can deliver it with that empathetic tone that is needed to get every on, everybody on board. So it's it literally is all of the above. 
you, you really have to understand that there's a, an emotional core to every story that's being told. And we're hardwired for story. That's, that's what modern trial practice has taught us more than anything. And jurors are really listening and paying close attention and getting the lawyer to understand that they're not just a deliverer of information, but they are a conveyor of a tale. Um, and not in a cinematic Hollywood kind of way. I know there's a lot of trial schools that teach that. I don't, I'm not that good of an actress. But, but understanding that is really central to developing how the case is ultimately going to be presented. It's funny that it really resonates with me because I use the facts of what happened to me when I was struck by a car when I was cycling um, with everybody that joins our team. I tell them the story of what I went through so that they understand and have a better, you know, realization of who they they have the opportunity to help and serve. So, and I think you got to be able to tell that you know in a way that resonates with people in a, in a way that they, they can connect to it with compassion and, and hopefully empathy, uh, you know, so, um, interesting because also, you know, one of the things that you were talking about, uh, Jamie was the witness, uh, preparation and, um, Ilya, when you presented for the FJA seminar that I, uh, attended it, there was a, a lot of focus on the witness prep and I'm, I'm, wondering how does that fit into the evolution of a personal injury case and, and making sure that those witnesses are able to, to do what's necessary to, to prevail. Before she speaks, can I, can I do a shameless plug here? Um, and, and here's the shameless plug. It's, it's for Ilya. Um, I have hired a variety of people to prep my witnesses, um, including some of the quote top experts uh, you know, people that make ten, twenty thousand dollars per prep, um, and I will tell you this: there, there's one among them that I currently use and have used for years. I, I think I'm pretty good at it, but there is one witness whisperer, whisperer, and that's Ilya, um, because she is the best of the best that I found, um, and has some of the most. Listen, she took a client that was really unable to, because they, they, in the middle of the trial, they caved in, went back into PTSD mode, I'm not sharing anything, and responded on a one-hour notice, got on a Zoom call, spent the next six hours with them, breaking down the fences to get them to open up again. And this is somebody I'd already spent hours and days getting ready to take to trial and she did what was done in days, literally got it back to where it needed to be in, in just a six hours. Um, but I, I hats off to her talent. Jamie, that was very gracious of you. Um, to, to answer your question, Jason, I would say it's everything because um, I know as a young lawyer, my very first big civil trial, we, um, we prevailed against the state of Arizona on a, on a gross negligence standard. And the jury's award was very, I mean, it was paltry because they never really connected to my client's story. And I learned then that you can have all the best evidence in the world, but if a jury does is not motivated to help your client, if they see no connection to them, they won't do it. And, and I learned that the hard way. And I've been very fortunate to have some, some excellent training and good exposure to things that help 
me reach into people's lives and, and um, evolve that. But as, as plaintiff lawyers, it's awful that we wait till the days leading up to trial. I can't tell you how many times I get called in. We're, we're starting trial on Monday. I've got three days to have this witness who has, you know, TBI and schizophrenia and PTSD and, you know, all these underlying conditions. And unfortunately, they say that I think the most important thing for last because a lot of these witnesses could do like a fantastic job delivering the story if they just had an opportunity to get their agenda out of the way, work out some of the emotional things they need to work out, and then understand the role that they play in the trial. That's great advice. Uh, so I wanted to spend some time talking to you guys about brain injury cases. Uh, for me, it's got a little bit of a, a personal interest since I know that my brain was certainly uh, injured to some extent after um, getting struck by that car and my my face and head striking that car. Um, in my case, there, there really was no focus on that aspect of the injury, even though I had a concussion and lost you know, a week of my life before being struck um, just because all of my facial injuries um, and limited coverage, it didn't really matter. Um, but I'm curious about both of your views on the evolution towards the better workup of brain injuries. Cause it, I know it used to be very difficult, but science has now evolved to have better diagnostics for mild to, to moderate TBIs. We've got a lot better tools to deal with it. I mean, I look back to the first traumatic brain injury case I tried 25 years ago, and we were dealing with a rudimentary spec scan and I, when I say rudimentary, I mean rudimentary. You, it, was, it looked like a kid playing with a paintbrush um, in terms of, of what you could see. And neuropsych, which is neuro, neuropsychologists are, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll be as kind as I can. It is a gray science, and they are now circling the wagons defending their practice rather than really, you know, trying to promote it up to the same level the rest of the science has developed to. And so it's not as it's not nearly as useful as it was 25 years ago, and in large part, it's been overcome by the defense and insurance industry, and in my opinion, a little bit corrupted. So having the modern tools, the the 3T MRI, having the DTI, some added analysis like a neuroquant, having much better, you know, balance testing much better vision testing, much better tools, and as well as a very important other issue, which is having the biomechanical engineer to defend against the defense biomechanical engineer who's gonna come in and say, there was never enough force to cause any injury. And, and you know, I'll just use your case. They would hire it in your case, Jason, where you had facial fractures to say, well, this doesn't meet the HIC criteria, therefore you must not be injured. Well, come on. But there are some on the jury that will buy into that if you're not prepared to defend against it. And we have the tools to do it now. 25 years ago, we were largely tilting at windmills trying to do that same thing. We were going with the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is about the most useless instrument for predicting outcomes of brain injuries as anything. It's, it's really good for saying, okay, where do we, what do we do with the triage in the initial phase? <clears throat> but trying to do long-term predictions over Glasgow Coma Scale, I, I think you'd do a better job reading tea leaves.
You know, and that's, that's interesting because I agree with everything that Jamie said. I mean, I think our tools now, the science has really come a long way. It's still way too far behind for where it should be, but it has come a long way from, from my first concussion case, which was, I think, about 18 years ago. Um, but I will say the evolution of plaintiff lawyers who are doing TBI, their knowledge base, I think, is also growing. More plaintiff lawyers are aware that they should have some kind of concussion screening for car crash cases, um, slip and falls. And so I see an evolution there. What I see, though, and I'd be interested in Jamie's thoughts on this, is the medicine is becoming slightly more complicated. If you've got a case where there's a significant value, it's not enough to just go through the checklist and, oh, okay, I've got a DTI and I've got a good neuroradiologist. Like You really have to be prepared to take an in-depth deposition of a neuroradiologist because the insurance companies are defending these vigorously and they are hiring experts, neuroradiologists, uh, uh, neurologists to defend at what I would say are unprecedented levels. So I, I very frequently caution lawyers about assuming that just because you followed the checklist of things that should be done, doesn't mean that you're gonna be able to get max value. So I very often, especially with younger lawyers, encourage them to, to co-counsel uh, with somebody who does this on a regular basis or who understands the medicine because it's um, it's sort of jaw-dropping the degree to which I feel like I have to know brain injury medicine going into a deposition. Very much so, and, and I will tell you, um, the minefields are out there and they are thick. Um, and if you leave one single gap in a brain injury case, and I'll, I'll use an example, wasn't, wasn't my personal case, but it was tried down in Tampa. Uh, the, the lawyer who tried it came to me and said, what do I need? told him when he needed, and he opted for, for making the business decision on a TBI case, he opted not to fill that gap. And it was a biomechanical engineer gap. Um, and had he filled it, I mean, he had a very savvy client. His client was a PhD psychologist. So she knew the medicine. But with the that one gap, there drove the entire case, and it was unsuccessful because they left that one gap. Um, and that's so it's not only a matter of of knowing the medicine, knowing the science, it's having experience to forecast if we don't do this, this is going to happen and it's going to happen to my client's detriment. And that's that's so it, it's a combination of it all. And it is it's it's not, you know, a simple brain injury case is a complex piece of yeah, work. There's no such thing. Those are really good points, Jamie. I, I agree with all of that. Well, that's some uh, incredible knowledge and wisdom for trial lawyers who are handling these types of cases. Um, it, it sounds like it's it's almost a bit like med mal litigation where you have a lot of expert intensive depositions that could very well determine the outcome. And if you miss uh, something there or you miss having the right expert on your side, that it could be uh, you know very detrimental to your the success I, of your I case. I can say it better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I read an article, Ilya, that you co-authored that talked about how brain injuries are insidious and how um, that plays into litigating cases where symptoms, you know, the onset can be delayed uh, or there's a late diagnosis. Can you guys talk about how that's 
kind of evolved today with with those sorts of situations? Well, I think as I as I said, lawyers are a little bit better. Um, there, we still have a population that's that's transitioning more slowly than the rest of us, but but who are beginning to recognize that very frequently you can have a, a TBI or a, a mild traumatic brain injury also um, from uh, rear end car crashes and slip and falls. And so I do see that there's an evolution because there's a dialogue, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of chatter, a lot of CLEs being put on. So awareness is still there. Um, but I think the problem is that as Jamie said, forecasting how these claims are going to be fought is part of developing the right plan. And brain injury is not the place where you want to skimp on experts. It's not where you want to skimp on treatment. These are lifetime injuries. And and I've had colleagues who've said, oh, you know, I settled my client's TBI for MTBI for $50,000. And I my heart is broken because I've, I've lived with people who have brain injuries. My, my relative is, is, is on my website and, you know, it just, and, and very special people to me. Um, my, one of my best friends um, that I met in law school, you know, these are people whose their lives were impacted forever. And the thought of settling a case for 50,000, as you know, it's like this affects you the rest of your life. It's heartbreaking. So it's, I think the answer is pretty complex. I don't. I don't. I could probably talk about that for two or three hours. Um, but yeah, it's it's really hard to watch. And and I, I, while I love the enthusiasm that people have getting into brain injury, it's really something that unless you're going to commit yourself, you shouldn't. And the analogy to medical malpractice is probably a pretty good one, because you know I. I I've done some medical malpractice cases in multiple states, but if it looks like a complex medical malpractice case, I am not doing my client a favor by trying to go forward with it. I'm doing my client a favor by getting it in the right hands. So since you can't see a brain injury outwardly, what are the challenges in bringing that to the jury so the jury understands it? Ooh, um, well, hit... Let me back up a little bit before we get to the jury, and I'll tell you one of the biggest challenges with dealing with brain-injured clients. If you want to know whether there's a brain-injured client in your client base, ask your staff who the biggest problem child is, and then drill down further and find out why. Many times out of 10, you're going to find out that's a brain injury you didn't know was there. But your staff knows it because they're unpredictable, they don't make appointments, they're late, they're inconsistent. On paper, they're some of the most unattractive people in the world. And I don't mean that meanly. I'm just, that's how they come across. And there's no explanation for it until you get into the brain injury and you start to find that's the reason for it. And, and so you then have to understand them and then you have to present it to a jury and in Till you get the medicine out in front of the client. In other words, the client doesn't testify until the jury understands the medicine that causes them to be the way they are. If you try putting the client out first and backfilling it with the medicine, good luck, because the jury doesn't like them already. The jury, they've already been proven to be 
inconsistent, a.k.a. a liar. They've proven to be unpredictable, a.k.a. they might come at me. I mean, all of those things that we identify with, quote, bad behavior, I, I have yet to find a brain injury client who didn't have most, if not all of them. And it's, it's I, I've seen people go from being the most wonderful, devoted husbands and fathers in the world to sons having to drag them off of their mothers because they lost their temper and were beating them because they had a frontal brain injury and no impulse control. And if, if a jury doesn't understand that, you don't have a chance. I mean, I, I wish I could sugarcoat it, but that's the way it is. It's really true. And, and lawyers, I think, even forget about their own client. They, like, I'll get calls at, on these really difficult clients and gosh, you know, please help this woman. She's driving me nuts. She won't follow directions. Well, they forget that they're brain injured and their brains don't process information the same way. So I'll come in and I'll tell everybody, put the prior deposition testimony away. Let's not make your client try to remember all the facts and figures because they're not, their process is, is no longer the same and they feel frustrated on the inside because they know they used to be a CPA before, or they used to, you know, math quiz, and now they can't remember even the date of their injury. And they get frustrated. And that tension between the lawyer and the client, if you go into trial with that, no, the jury's going to see that. You want to make sure that you have, as the trial lawyer, a very good understanding of what it's like to live with a brain injury um, and what your client is up against. And then, as Jamie said, you have to lay out the medicine right up front before a jury ever gets an opportunity to see the client you have to have experts say look this person has no you know executive functioning um, ability anymore or they're functioning at this level and here's why and this is what that's going to look like so when they testify later in the trial it, the, the jury says doesn't see you know somebody who's maybe unintelligent they think oh well that's that's part of the injury right it's been laid out for them so um, everything Jamie said, I, I, again, I would back that up 100%. And, and I will tell you, Jason, to go to, to, to go to what you do, which is really good lean resolution and resolution at the back end of a settlement, if you want to have a challenge with a brain injury client, try to explain to them the details of, of lean resolution and all of the details of what you do. It's, it's almost impossible. Um, because they don't have the processing to, 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 to deal with it. So sometimes you've got to actually get a, a ward of the court. You've got to make them a ward of the court to let somebody else handle that because it's, it's just very, very difficult. And even those who are some of the better functioning of my brain injury clients, we have to have five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten sit downs to do what you do with somebody else in 20 minutes. Yeah, I've, I've experienced that firsthand over the last, you know, 23 years of, of working on these types of cases. So I, I have a question, and maybe you've already answered this, but um, how do you take a TBI and turn it into translatable evidence that ultimately results in a great recovery for your client? Because we know the defense is minimizing the claim, saying there's really no brain injury. So how do you, how do you use evidence combat those defenses? 
Oh, you want to take the lead with that one, and I'll I'll do the follow sure. on that. I feel like no, I'm no. Charging I, I, I think we both have uh, things to add. Um, I would say that it, evidence in a TBI case is very layered, right? You have you have the imaging, and then you have um, you have other clinicians um, talk about you know neurologists. Um, we use a biomedicine specialist uh, very often to talk to corroborate the injury. Right, so you can talk about the, the biomechanics of the injury or the biomedicine of the injury, um, how the body moves, um, how the brain gets damaged, what structures are ruptured, and so you can use imaging, um, also uh, visual demonstrations to show how the how the brain shifts within the skull, and then you have um, neuroradiologists to be able to talk about the findings on imaging. Um, you have neurologists to talk about how functioning. You may have a neuropsychologist. Um, you know, if you if you've got a, a strong one, there, I mean, there's a there's a myriad of ways to layer that, but but really, ultimately, what you do is you show that that the injury, the mechanism of injury, the certain part of the brain that was that was um, affected, shows up on imaging. It's the same part that is um, demonstrating lack of function, and that coordination um, helps to corroborate the injury, and then you get family and friends, you know, before and after witnesses to be able to talk about what they were like before, how they're now different. And does that line up also with the part of the brain? Um, for instance, um, my family member has a left temporal lobe issue. And so a lot of his, um, I mean, he lines up perfectly with a left temporal lobe disorder, predictably, you know, so, so having, having people who are familiar with what part of the brain is affected and how that manifests and what it looks like every day, then the, the jury starts to hear things from family members and they go, oh yeah, that's right. The, the, you know, the, the neuropsychologist said that that was gonna affect short-term memory. And so they, they line those things up and they really like to you know, be able to put those pieces together. So you, your job is to lay it out for them so that they can connect the dots. I agree completely with, with, with what Ilya said with a, with a few additions, if you are not anchoring your brain injury in objectives, in other words, if you're not, you know, putting down concrete markers down in that soft sand to make it as, as anchored as you can, you're going to get drug off that beach and your client's going to get drug right with you. And, and so you've got to hit every, you know, you got to hit the balance, you got to hit the vision, you got to hit the MRI DTI. And then once you get all that, you not only have to backstop it with the with the before and after witnesses, but you better be able to visualize it. You know, you better be able to to, to take the MRI DTI or take the MRI and volumize it and have a graphic image done of it so that they can see exactly where the injury is. Because if I say prefrontal cortex, everybody goes, oh, um, you know, you've got to peel back the layers of the brain to show exactly how it matches up, how that matches up with the biomechanics, how the how the occupant moved within the car when they hit their head on the windshield. All of that has got to be a complete picture. And if it's not, it's going to be a bad day. So this uh, this next question may take us full circle back to the trial structure question because I have a feeling it might, but. With, with these cases being medically complex, like med mal cases, 
how how do you make these cases simple for the jury so that they can understand it even with a lot of complex science and and medical terminology i'm gonna let Ilya take that one because that is so right within her wheelhouse it's all preparation it, you know trial structure is not a shortcut and that's it's a it's a good avenue to organize information if that's all you're interested in and you just want to come to a you know two or three hour webinar to learn you know how the segments are laid out that's fine i think you'll get a lot out of it but we teach that structure really has it's like the rabbit hole and it's a it's a rabbit hole of deep um, preparation you use the term jason earlier about resonating and i i love that term because it, it one of the things I liken the law to is an alchemy, right? You take you take these base metals of tin and iron, and you you through the application of heat and pressure, you distill out the essence of the more pure substance, which for the alchemist was gold. Well, what's the gold in in a trial? And ultimately, it's the key pieces of evidence that are going to deliver your final result. And so. Trial structure to me is the process of distilling down. I just finished a structure for um, a colleague in Arizona and the room was covered. Um, we had sheets of paper on the wall, you know, halfway down and, and some of them three and four deep, just writing every, you know, the conceivable ways that, that the defense was attacking his case and planning how we were going to respond and where the gaps in our evidence was, were and what experts we needed to to um, to get so that we could you know fill in those gaps and that kind of work that and that was you know it was three days of you know laying all of that out and to be committed at that level and just decide I'm going to look at the good the bad and the ugly of my case and that way I'll be ready that's how you get there with, with, and the amazing thing is at the end it looks so simple it's like duh how could anybody you know people will say They'll actually say, well, that doesn't sound like a case of these structures. It's like so obvious. And again, the dog, the dog attack case, 17 days. We, we structured it. The lawyers took it. They focus grouped it. It came back. They're like, nope, focus group still hates it. We wrote and wrote and wrote. They took it out. Focus group still hates it. <laughs> they like it a little better. And so, and there's no replacement for that. But if you want to give that best, that, that case, the best chance at trial, this is the way. And it eliminates a lot of the, you know, no case is going to be certain. You just can't get there. But you can certainly eliminate a lot of the uncertainty. Um, and if you if you plan for and prepare for every way they're coming at you, and you project it before they ever do it, when the jury sees it, they go, ah, we knew that was coming. And the only way they know it's coming is because you're telling them, be prepared for this. And they see it. You see it, and they see it for what it is, which is just the, just an attempt to confuse the issues. Yeah, very true. So, with you guys, your your experience, what do you see that most trial lawyers get wrong about litigating brain injury cases? What's the this most? This is all you, say? Jamie. <laughs> here's what I think. Here's where trial lawyers go wrong litigating brain injury cases. Um, they think about the end money instead of the investment money. 
and and I, I've seen it happen more than once. In fact, I'm, I'm co-counseling on a case that I'm being brought in in July, and I was brought in three months before the, the case was going to be tried. It was already ready and pre-tried before I got in. And I have to start boiling down, why'd you do this? Why'd you do this? Why'd you do this? And the, the, the answer comes back consistently. It's because I, I didn't want to spend the money. Um, and, and I get it. We all have practices to run. We all have preservation of capital we've got to do. But in a brain injury case, that can't be in the calculus. It's got to be, we're, we're all in. Um, and, and I, is, you know, as, as much as it may keep me up at night to know that my house is mortgaged so that I can be all in, I know that that's the only way to do the medicine. I know that that's the only way to do the biomechanics. I know that if I leave a gap or a crack in the case, it's going to be exploited and everything's going to pour out of it. So, I, it, and if you think about the end money, in other words, what the case is going to bring, instead of thinking about the investment today that I've got to do to get it there, you're going to you're going to end up with a bad result. So true. Yeah, the the investment in these types of cases, um, you know that that's I. I seen it in other aspects. I've seen cases where um, that investment was not made, uh, whether it was an investment of time or an investment of money on experts and, and it doesn't end well, typically, uh, you know, unfortunately for the client. And that's really what, you know, what, what we're all here for is to make sure that that client has the best possible outcome after something pretty awful has happened to them. So, um, I, last couple of questions. I'll let you guys go. I really appreciate your time. Um, this is a, a bit of a self-serving question given what we do, but um, in your each of your opinions, what are the most difficult issues that you're facing when a case settles uh, these days? Is it dealing with Medicare? Is it the liens? Is it Medicaid, uh, what what types of issues are you typically seeing that become really problematic at the end of a case? I'll give you some very, very recent experience. And it's like last week, yes, or, you know, last Friday, the, the Friday before I started trial. It's, it, it is all of the above. It's, it's big Medicare set-aside issues um, that it's, it's hard to get predictability soon enough. Um, and it's, lean resolution where it's hard to get predictability soon enough because in brain injury cases particularly where you don't have the processing to process it, but in every other case as well, what does the client want to know? You walk into mediation, same question, almost with 100% certainty that's going to come at you. How much of this is going to be in my pocket? What's my takeaway? And you can't answer that until you know, you can, you can give some estimates, but good luck giving an estimate to a client because the range is huge because oftentimes the case, the lien resolution resolves the case. If, if, if you can resolve the liens at this, the case can be settled. But if you resolve them at this, that case is lost. You may as well try it. Um, and if you can't answer the question, how much is in my pocket, or at least get the backstop, like a Medicare set-aside ahead of time, to tell the client, 
you're going to have a very difficult time resolving that case. And if you do resolve it, you, you're going to have some very difficult liabilities if, if you're trying to do it yourself. And, and just like Ilya said, put the best people on the best part of the problem because it's what they do. I think the ahead of time piece is is really critical. Um, lately, I've been brought in on more cases, and so there's usually some other effort at mediation right before we get into trial again. And I'm surprised that the lawyers very often don't have final lien amounts, um, you know, final, uh, they don't have Medicare amounts, they don't have agreements ahead of time. Uh, and, and it does, it makes it really difficult because we all know that question's coming. And, and it's not, you know, I, I know for myself, there, there have been times when I've just been in over my head, but as a, as a practice, we should certainly be way better about that than we are. Yeah, being proactive, particularly on the Medicare front these days, is really important. Anytime I give a presentation on those issues, I talk about this is an area where you, you may want to be a little bit collaborative with the defense to talk through, okay, well, what, what happens if we settle this case? My client's a Medicare beneficiary. What are you going to require in the release? What are your clients going to require in terms of reimbursement of Medicare? You know, Do they have any you know, particular requirements uh, in identifying whether there was a Part C plan, Advantage plan involved, because, you know, what happens is we, we will get contacted and they're saying, well, you know, the other side, um, they, they've got all these, you know, pages in the release. I don't understand this language and we review it and it's terrible and we're saying, hey, you don't really want to sign that. Well, it's kind of late in the game after you've mediated the case, agreed to settle the case, and 30 days later, you're haggling over, you know, terms in the release. So I think that proactive part, uh, especially now with, particularly at least in the Medicare world, I, I think really all these issues, because it, it does make things go smoother, generally speaking, if you, if you have some collaborative work with the defense, once the case resolves about some of the more complex issues that can arise uh, at settlement. And it changes daily. I mean, how we deal with, you know, Medicare, Medicare Part B, Medicare Part C in front of a jury today, that answer is probably going to be different than after the, you know, the appellate courts of the Supreme Court answer that question in Florida six months from now. Um, so it's, you better get somebody who makes it their business to keep it on their radar. Because if, if, if otherwise you're going to spend a lot of time track on that radar yourself and that may not be your the best use of your talent yeah that's uh it's, you know very good plug for our tagline allowing trial lawyers to focus on what they do best because i mean it is it is an area of expertise unto itself so if if people if trial lawyers are not working with synergy they they need to work with somebody that understands these issues and it's not every case but there's a lot of cases now that are complex enough where you, you may need someone to give you a little bit of advice and consulting, even if it's not, you know, complete turning over the resolution of some of these issues, but they're, they're definitely are, and it's evolving. And so, like you said, if you're not going to keep tabs on it, you, you could wind up in a situation where you just don't know exactly what you need to be doing. Well, and, and I can't tell you how many seminars I've left where you've spoken, Jason, or somebody else has spoken uh, for the FJA, where I've gone back to my office and said, oh my God, 
you know, and it's, oh my God, we need to look at this because those are the moments there. They will keep you up at night, just like statutes of limitations will. It's what you don't know may well, kill you. And, and so. uh, this will be my shameless plug for, for Jason, but, but really I, I know for myself, the realization that, you know, the liability shifting, no offense, Jason, but to have somebody else on the hook for, you know, finding that information, it's such a, such a affordable rate, you know, for, for what you charge for your services. I mean, there's almost like, I just, I'm hard pressed to come up with a reason why you wouldn't do it. I, it, it just, it, it doesn't seem wise. It's a, it, it, it does give you that, the, the, the freedom in your mind to know that somebody is handling that, whose job it is to handle it, who's probably going to do it better than me anyways. And, and to not have the exposure on the back end is, it's a huge relief. You know, Jason, I've got a question for you, if you know the answer to it. Um, you know, I know that lien resolution is, is looked at by the Florida Bar as part of the package that we deliver as a trial lawyer when we sign the contract. Our firm's dealing with that up front and saying, hey, you know, if you sign with my law firm and we, we have to do lien resolution as part of the package, we're going to use so-and-so, and here's going to be the rate. But I'm letting you know that up front. Are you seeing that in the initial client contract? Yeah, many firms are putting it into their contracts now. And, you know, I mean, you know, Florida is a little unique because we did have this proposed rule that went to the Florida Supreme Court and the Florida Supreme Court, you know, had had some stuff in dicta, which really did not, uh, you know, if you boil it down and we, and we don't have time to do that, but it, it, it really didn't apply outside of cases that are like cases that I handle um, in, in at DOA for Florida Medicaid, because I've got a law practice that's separate from Synergy. Those are the types of cases that really that was focused on where another lawyer is, is brought in. But, you know, the, there are many firms that are putting that into their contracts because they, they, they know that there is that potential at the end of the case and clients should have that, you know, um, informed consent provided to them prior to it even getting to the point of, hey, this this is a complex case where, you know, we're going to refer this out to a lien resolution group to make sure that we get you the best, you know, possible net proceeds because, you know, experts are, are what is needed to get that. Well, if you have some examples of how that's being done, I'd love to see it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a wise idea. Yeah. Anyone <laughs> listen to the podcast, if you want an example of that, I certainly can provide it. All right, guys, uh, last question, I'll let you go. Um, since this is the Trial Law Review podcast, my final question always is, is what is your view as a trial lawyer? And you can talk about whatever you want. So uh, we'll let ladies go first. Um, what's interesting that, that you put it that way, I, I was a very um, fortunate young lawyer that I had some stellar mentors um, and, and continue to have stellar mentors. Um, Jamie among them, um, colleagues and mentors. But what I lacked, I felt 20 years ago when I started in personal injury was a lot of access to women trial lawyers. And while I see that that's changing, it's still pretty slow. And so part of my view is not only changing uh, trial practice via trial structure, but also making a better place for women. I think a lot of the instruction I got as a young lawyer worked for my 
male colleagues and not so well for me. Uh, and I have learned some through trial and error, some through trial structure, what does work for me and what seems to work better as a woman litigator. And so my view is to make, uh, make the path of being a successful trial lawyer better and easier for those who come after me, including my fellow women trial lawyers. I love that. My, my last guest uh, on the podcast, Kate Conway, talked about those, those issues. And I've had a lot of other women trial lawyers on the podcast who have talked about those issues. And I think it's great to continue to get that dialogue out there. Thanks for sharing that. All right, Jamie. Well, I will tell you, the, the, my biggest view is you better be prepared to listen to the voices that aren't you. Um, and what do I mean by that is I, I have a ton of blind spots and I know it and my strength is I know it. Um, so I spend a lot of time with some really, really, really wise people out there who will, who give me access and in return, I give them access and, and we talk about it and they're brutally honest with me and say, Jamie, you're missing this. You really ought to look at this. And I tell them the same thing, but having that sort of collaboration makes me so much better lawyer because without it, without the friends and the relationships and the ability to pick up the phone and say, I got this problem. Can you help me? And then come back and say, I can not only help you, but here's where you're missing it. Here's where you're missing it. Listen to the voices that aren't your own because that is a strength. That's really good overall advice in business and personal. Uh, I, I, I absolutely love that because it's something that I've been very intent on the last five, six years is making sure I'm as good of a leader and as a employer and a person. And, and really the way you do that is, is by becoming aware of yourself and your blind spots. And so that that's uh, great advice. All right. So I know that you guys uh, talked a lot about co-counseling cases, and I'm sure, you know, there are instances where other lawyers refer cases to you. So I wanted to give you both the opportunity to give out your contact information here on the podcast. We'll include it in the show notes, but I wanted each of you to be able to give that out. So if somebody's got a question about trial structure or all the stuff we talked about, uh, about brain injury cases or wants to work with you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? And Again, I'll let ladies go first. Well, the trial structure website is probably the, the best place to start for information. I will caution, we get a lot of requests for written materials and we really don't publish a lot of um, information for obvious reasons. We don't want it misused by the defense bar. So if you have questions about trial structure, what it is, uh, what the process is, that's the, the best starting point and all of the contact information for us is there. My um, website, or excuse me, my email address through Trial Structure is Elia, my first name, I-L-Y-A, at trialstructure.com. But there's a number of other addresses, the other instructors, our info, um, and then, of course, our office manager, Katanya, and the executive director, Brad. All those are people that you can start with. So if you have questions about Trial Structure, that's the best place to start. You can also reach me there personally, too. So any emails directed to me, I get them all. So that's really the only address you need to know. Same place, same, same, same answer with one, one caveat. You can email me at jamie at holland.law, and it's literally J-A-M-I-E, holland at holland.law. 
So it's that easy. But if you send me an email, because of the thousand I get a day, if you text me at 904-910-1080 and say, hey, Jamie, I just sent you an email. Tell me what you think. You're much more likely to get a response. Because it, I hate to say it, but if you want to communicate with me, I, it, it takes the belts and suspenders approach. I wish it were different. Yeah, and but I it's don't. Not. I don't have any issue with people using my cell either. Um, my number is six zero two six two eight zero one nine zero, and I'm always open to texts and calls. My cell phone's always with me, you know, unless I'm in trial or something. So, good way to reach me too. Well, thank you to you both for joining me today on Trial or Review, and we will see all of you on the next episode. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for tuning in to Trial or Review. You can find more at trialreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.